Church family, you may be seated, and as you are, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Psalm 72, the 72nd Psalm. It's going to be our subject this morning in our last message here in these Psalms of Messiah series we've been looking at this Christmas time. As you get settled and get your place in your Bible, I want to remind you that this week uh, we start anew on Wednesday nights. We take off from Thanksgiving to Christmas, but I'll be starting a new series this Wednesday on the five solas of the Reformation. You may say, I have no idea what in the world that means. Well, come on Wednesday nights and I'll teach you. Uh, 500 years ago, as the Protestant Reformation began, there were five principles that over the course of time kind of developed as the guiding principles of that movement, and they were known as the five solas. I'm going to take a couple of weeks to teach on each one of those, uh, introducing this, the idea this Wednesday and then teaching through them. There are some books that are in the Equip Center that if you're interested in uh, one or more of those subjects, you could buy them. I'm not going to teach through those books, but I'm going to kind of follow the same pattern that those books follow. So if you would like to have one of those, they're in the Equip Center for you. So that starts at 6.30 this Wednesday night. All of our family ministry activities start back this Wednesday at 6.15. So students, children, preschoolers start at 6.15, adults start at 6.30 in here. And so all everything starts back uh, this coming Wednesday. And then next Sunday, I will begin a new series uh, in the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel is an interesting book. It is a combination of narrative and prophecy. There are some easy passages to preach in Daniel, and there is probably the most difficult passage in the entire Bible in the book of Daniel. And so we will do some very familiar stuff and probably some stuff that's pretty unfamiliar to uh, many in that 12-week series. So that starts next Sunday. So we look forward to a new Sunday morning series next week and a new Wednesday night equip series and all of our family ministry stuff starting back this Wednesday night. I invite you now to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word as we look at one more psalm here about our Messiah, Jesus Christ. This is attributed by the scribes as a psalm of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness, and you're poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth, in his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for all the day. 
for there may, for there may be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for giving us a new year another year to be alive, another year to serve you and to glorify your son, Jesus Christ, in all that we say and all that we do. May this be a year, O God, where the good news of your gospel goes forth, where justice is done, where righteousness of our God is proclaimed, where your people prosper in your name, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? A change happened in the way that we communicate with one another when we all started sending text messages. I've pretty much found nearly everybody, I'm sure somebody doesn't, somebody will come to me after and like, I've never sent a text message in my life. It's okay, most of us do. And it's become the preferred means of communication for almost everybody. The question even arises, why are you calling me when you could just text me, right? But with the, uh, with the invention of the text message and even kind of its predecessor, the email, there was a reinvigoration of a certain punctuation mark, the exclamation point. Do you remember being taught how to write as a child? Maybe when you started doing uh, research papers or short papers in middle school and into high school and your, your teachers would tell you, now don't overuse the exclamation point. We were told, at least I was told, you probably shouldn't, shouldn't use more than one of those in, in an entire paper. Well, now people put exclamation points on the end of everything. Nearly every text message ends in an exclamation point. Emails will be full of exclamation points. And if you need biblical proof that the exclamation point is useful, it's Psalm 72. It's kind of a hard psalm to read through in the way that it's written because everything seems to be said with exclamation, at least most of these lines. Now, obviously, if you know anything about the Hebrew language, there was no exclamation points. But it was written in such a way that our English translators felt the need to end the majority of the lines in this text with that punctuation, exclaiming what is being proclaimed to us here in the word of God. This is a psalm of exclamation. It is intended to draw the reader's attention to what is being cried aloud by the people over their king. This is a psalm of coronation. As I mentioned before I began to read it, it is attributed by the scribes as a psalm of Solomon. 
That does not necessarily mean it was written by Solomon. The, the postscript, that very last line about the, which closes out the second book of the Psalms, there's five books in the Psalms, and this is the last Psalm of that second book, and it says that the, the, the prayers or the Psalms of David are concluded. It is possible that this is a Psalm of David over his son Solomon, or it is possible that it is a Psalm of Solomon over his son Rehoboam. But it would likely have then been recited at the coronation of all of the new kings of at least Judah. As we read through this, we should read it with the hope and heartbreak that generation after generation of Israelites installing a new king would have read and heard this psalm at these various coronations. There was great hope that a new king would come that would live up to the psalm. And then there was heartbreak, knowing that no earthly king could possibly live up to everything in this psalm, and many of the kings of Israel would utterly fail to do what is written in these words. Ultimately, this is a psalm of coronation, not over an earthly king, not over David speaking of his son Solomon, not over Solomon speaking of his son Rehoboam, not over any earthly king, but over a heavenly king. The Messiah, because no earthly king could rule perfectly in all of these things. But one day, the Lord would send one who could. And that is ultimately how the people of God in the Old Testament began to view this psalm. They viewed it looking forward to the reign of the Messiah, and we view it looking back upon Jesus and in the present of his reign now and the future reign that we will experience with him for all eternity. This is a psalm of the Messiah and of his righteous reign. So let's look at the various parts of this psalm together. First, the righteous reign of the Messiah. The psalm begins by pointing us to the righteousness of our Lord. He says, the psalmist writes, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. The first characteristic of the reigning king and ultimately the reign of the Messiah is that the Messiah will be a righteous king. This is the beginning of the prayer that his righteousness would reign amongst his people, that this righteousness would come, would have its source in God alone. It is a prayer to God. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Whether this is a psalm written by David over Solomon or Solomon over his son, you can see the passion here and from the very beginning that the righteousness that David knew in his life and that Solomon practiced at least in parts of his would be passed down from one generation to another. But what do we know? We know from the story of scripture that most of the kings of Israel, most of the kings that ruled in Jerusalem failed utterly to practice righteousness. Most of them followed in the ways of wicked kings from generation to generation. 
failing to practice the righteousness of God, failing to live up to the opening stanza of their coronation. But one would come who would be righteousness personified. One would come who would live the righteousness of God in a way that no other earthly king could ever do. Generations after this psalm is written, the Lord raises up amongst his people a prophet to tell of this coming Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read part of that prophecy where Isaiah says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his root, a branch will bear fruit. This is the line of David that is in focus here. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. Israel's kings were often terrible at leading the people in righteousness, but one would come who would do so perfectly. So this coronation psalm that was spoken likely by the people over their new king generation after generation, knowing that many, most all would fail to live in perfect righteousness before the Lord, they held out hope that one day one would come from the Lord who would have righteousness as his belt. Now we know who that is. This is the person, Jesus Christ sent by God to be the righteous king and righteous judge over all the earth. Jesus is the righteous Messiah of God, sent to fulfill both the prophecy of Isaiah 11 and the coronation of Psalm 72. Jesus is the righteous king. Just as the kings of Israel failed in their righteousness, So has every other ruler, in every other throne, in every other palace, in every other White House to ever exist on planet Earth. What we see here, again, is hope and heartbreak. And while so many will put their faith and their hope in some kind of earthly ruler to show them the way of light, here's what we know. They will all fail where Jesus alone succeeds. We should have no hope that anyone of any party, of any denomination, of any stripe at all in this world will be able to live up to the righteous standards of God outside of the person of Jesus who has done so, who shows us the righteousness of God and reigns in that righteousness as the Messiah. Second, we see the endless and boundless reign of the Messiah. Look at verses five through seven with me. May they fear you while the sun endures. And as long as the moon throughout all generations, may he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. 
This next stanza, these three verses speak of the endless reign of the Messiah. That's what this figurative language, this poetic Psalm tells us, this is why there is an appeal to the endurance of the sun and the everlasting moon. They look to these heavenly bodies and they say, may his reign last as long as the sun and the moon. Now, we put ourselves in the position of ancient people who didn't quite have a concept that we do of the sun and the moon. And we think of these heavenly bodies in, 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 in their mindsets and think these, these bodies have existed since the Lord has created them and these bodies will continue to exist until the Lord ceases for them to exist. And while we may know more now about the sun and the moon than they did, the basic principle remains the same. They have existed since the Lord spoke them into existence and they will exist for as long as the Lord desires them to exist. And this speaks of the endless reign of the Messiah. That as long as the sun and the moon are in the sky, Jesus will reign. There is obviously no earthly king that could reign in this way. There is no earthly king that could outlive the sun or the moon. But there is one, Jesus, who will. When the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter one comes to Mary who would become the mother of Jesus to tell her that she will, even though she is a virgin, will be with child and will bear the son of God. He makes this promise to her. He says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Every grave in Israel today is still occupied, save one. All the kings of Israel are now dust, save one. There is one who rose from the dead to reign for all eternity, and that is Jesus alone. Jesus lives now. He is the one who existed before the sun and the moon and will exist after the sun and the moon. And to his reign, there will be no end. While the Israelites may have hoped for long life, maybe even multiple generations of life for a good and godly king, what this psalm looks forward to is not a king that may rule for a generation or two, but a king that will rule for all eternity. There is no reign to the end. There is no end to the reign of Jesus, our Messiah. Look at the next stanza though, verses eight through 11. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the king of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Not only is the reign of the Messiah an endless reign, but it is also a boundless reign. Even in ancient times where kingdoms were known to spread throughout what they believed to be the entire world, it was never truly the case. As, we, as, as the nations of, or the kingdoms of the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans spread out and conquered new lands, they never conquered the entire planet. 
There were, they were, there were always additional lands for, that were, were outside of their control, but not of King Jesus, not of the reign of the Messiah. For his dominion is from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. And then there's these mentions in this poem of the, the desert tribes and kings of Tarshish and the coastlands and Sheba and Seba. And we say, well, are these places, where are these places and what does this mean? Well, these were actual places. These were actual people. But here in the psalm, they represent the peoples of the earth. For this writer, these were the, as far away of lands as they knew of. It wasn't the farthest away lands, but it was the farthest away lands that they knew of. And they said, may the kings of all of these places come and bring him gifts. May they render him tribute. May all the kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. Because the reign of the Messiah is not bound by geographical borders that are drawn on some map that are contested from one generation to the next. The reign of the Messiah is a boundless reign. Jesus doesn't just rule in some places. Jesus rules in all places. Back in Isaiah chapter 11, as Isaiah looks to this coming Messiah, he says, he will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. You see, the Messiah's boundless reign is essential for our salvation. That prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 is expanded in the words of Jesus in Mark 13 when he says, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. There should be no greater joy for Christians that live as far as we do from Israel that the reign of the Messiah is boundless. You see, if the reign of the Messiah was only for this one little part of the world on the kind of forgotten corner of the Mediterranean Sea and that was where the Messiah would reign and no one else would really know of it, it would exclude nearly everyone here today. But his reign is boundless. It goes around the globe. It is to the ends of the earth, Jesus says, and he will gather his elect from the four, from the four winds. This means from every direction. Jesus will gather his sheep. He will fulfill Isaiah 11 when he calls his church home to him because his reign knows no border. It knows no boundary. It has no limit. There is no place on this earth that the reign of Jesus does not touch and where Jesus cannot call his own to himself because his reign is endless and boundless. Third, we see that his reign is compassionate. Look at verses 12 through 14. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. And precious is their blood in his sight. This next stanza speaks to the compassion that the king should have over his people. And as they failed in their righteousness, so often the kings of Israel failed in their compassion for those whom they ruled over, whom God had entrusted to them as their earthly leader. 
But Jesus never fails. Just as he never fails in his righteousness, he does not fail in his compassion. Now, it's important for us to note here that this is the second call for justice in the psalm. The first is in verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. The first time that the justice of the Messiah is in view, it is tied to his righteousness, but this time it is tied to his compassion. That word in verse 13 translated as pity in the ESV Bible is translated as compassion in the New American Standard. They mean the same thing. It's that that the king should look upon his people with with compassion, with, with a desire to meet their needs, particularly the needs of the needy, the needs of the oppressed, the needs of those who are in need of help. This is the job of the king. And so often earthly kings look past those who need their help, but Jesus never does. Of all the things said of this king, justice is the only one mentioned twice. So hear me, church, we can't be afraid of that word. The cause of the poor and the oppressed has been so politicized in our day that many don't wanna talk about it. Many don't wanna deal with it at all. But that is not a viable option for the church of God. Our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, is the one who has compassion on those in need. He is the helper of the poor. He is the redeemer for the oppressed. We must be for the things that Jesus is for. But we must also recognize from where our real help and relief and redemption comes. They are found in Christ alone. For too long, the church has absconded her duty in this arena. We've looked to the state, we've looked to other organizations, or in many cases, to no one at all, to do the work of justice in our world. But for justice to really be done in our world, we must recognize the true answer to the need of the oppressed. And that is Jesus. Jesus is the one who changes hearts. Jesus is the one who punishes wickedness. Jesus is the one who brings upon him the needs of all people. This is why he invites us in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to come to him. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Can I just make an offer to you today? Do, do you feel beat down? I imagine there are people in this room right now that feel beat down abused by this world, oppressed by those who seem to hold power over you. Know this, you can go to Jesus today and find rest. You can go to Jesus today and find deliverance. You can go to Jesus today and find hope because he has compassion on you. There is no one with more compassion than Jesus. This king who reigns over all the earth for all time, reigns with a great compassion, the likes of which we have never seen in an earthly king, the likes of which our worldly minds could never comprehend. We will never, this side of heaven, I believe, fully understand the compassion of Jesus. So church, when we are in need of compassion, we run to the most compassionate king. And... When we have experienced his compassion, it is then required of us that we show others that same compassion, that we seek to do the kind of justice that Jesus would do 
as we call men to run to him with their burdens and find rest in Jesus alone. The final stanza shows us the blessed reign of the Messiah. The psalmist begins in verse 15, long may he live. May gold, may gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land on the tops of the mountains. May it wave, may its fruit be like Lebanon and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. I'll come back to verses 18 and 19 in a moment, but let's look at what these verses 15, 16, 17 are are saying to us about this coronation psalm. They're asking the Lord for great blessing. They're asking the Lord first, in its temporal sense, for blessing over the king of Israel. But speaking of the Messiah, they are recognizing the great blessing that is our eternal king, Jesus. They were looking forward to the one who would receive all blessings from all around the world. There's a call here. I'll just use one of these uh, poetic points as an example. There's a call here for all the gold of she or for the gold of Sheba to be given to him. This gold of Sheba would have been meaningful in the life of Solomon. If you know the story of Solomon, you know that the queen of Sheba. This is uh, the partially the land that we would consider Ethiopia today. So Northern Africa comes up to uh, Israel. She's heard about the king of Israel. She's heard about Solomon's wealth and with her comes gold. And she gives Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10, a whole lot of gold, but she's not the only one that gives him a whole lot of gold. In 1 Kings 9 and 10, there are multiple kings that have come to Solomon. And when you get to the end of that chapter, the, the author for us, the, the, the scribe who's writing all of these things down, adds up all of the gold that kings brought to Solomon just in that one year. The Bible tells us that Solomon was brought by various kings 666 talents of gold. And you say, well, 666 talents of gold, that's a lot if we really understand what a talent is. You see, 666 talents of gold is about 50,000 pounds of gold. I I didn't stutter. I didn't say 50,000 coins. I said 50,000 pounds of gold. I had to do the math twice because I'm not good at math to make sure I was right here. Do you know how much that's worth today? Right at about one and a quarter billion dollars in one year just in gold. Now that's not all the stuff that was brought to Solomon. It's not all the gold Solomon had. That's not all the horses and land and everything else that was brought to him. Just in one year, $1.25 billion. Could you imagine 50,000 pounds of gold brought to Solomon? The gold of Sheba. Where's that gold now? It's gone taken by one invader or the next, spread throughout the world. But this Psalm writes of one who will have this gold and will have this land, will have these riches and will have this blessing forever. His name, verse 17 tells us, will endure forever. His blessing will never end. While we may think 50,000 
pounds of gold, $1.25 billion in gold is just some just unimaginable amount of riches. It is nothing compared to the riches of our Lord Jesus. It's nothing. And you know what happened to Solomon? He wasted it and died. And then it was robbed from one place to the next. But the riches and blessing of our Lord never end. All of the people will call him blessed for all time. And this is why I wanted to say verses 18 and 19, because of the answer to the question, why? Why are the riches of God different than the riches of these earthly kings? Listen to these verses. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. There is a reason that nothing in this world compares to the riches of our Lord because they come from the creator of the universe himself. Earthly kings experience some, all of them, good and bad experience some form of temporal blessing from the Lord. The very fact that they are an earthly king means that God has placed them there for good or for wicked for whatever amount of time that they are there. So they have all experienced some kind of blessing from the Lord, whether they recognize it or not. But Jesus experiences an eternal blessing from the Lord, one that far outweighs Solomon's gold, far better than all of the riches of this world are the blessings of King Jesus. So what? Jesus the Messiah reigns now and forevermore. I, I can't hardly imagine a better truth for us to begin with this new year than this simple truth that I know so many in this room hold dear to their hearts. And that is no matter what happens in this world, Jesus reigns. It seems like a lot has happened in our world recently. It's been a difficult time. It's been such a difficult time that we're kind of tired of even talking about it, right? We, we've kind of just progressed to the point where we're like, oh, do I have to hear about another bad thing? Do we have to talk about another spike? Which at the end, yes, I'll talk about once again. Did, all of the bad that seems to surround us, but we hold out this one hope in our hearts that no matter what befalls us in this temporary world, it can never unseat Jesus from his throne. He is the eternal reigning king, sitting at the right hand of the Father himself, now and forever. The reality of Jesus' reign is just as real now as it was, by the way, then, and just as real as it will be in the day that we see him face to face, Jesus reigns. The Bible gives us a beautiful picture at the end of scripture of the reign of Jesus. John in his revelation of this time looks in Revelation 21 and says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the almighty and the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. But its light, by its light, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day and they will, there will be no night there. 
They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This picture that John gives us of the end time, the eternal reign of Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth is after the sun and the moon have passed away. Those two heavenly landmarks that the psalmist appeals to for the reign of the earthly king. They're no more because there's no more need of them. Jesus is now the light. His boundless and endless reign spans across the new heaven and the new earth for all eternity with those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You may say today, well, how can I experience the reign of the Messiah? It's really easy. Call upon the name of the Lord. Look to him who has compassion upon you for your greatest need, regardless of what you think your greatest need is. I can promise you today, your greatest need is the deliverance from your own sin, from your own self. And Jesus has offered to deliver that by dying in your place so that you might live. This eternal king died so that you, his subject, might live. And you can experience the eternal reign of the Messiah by simply calling on him, putting your faith in Jesus so that you may find life and find it abundantly and that you may find rest in him alone. And by doing so, by responding to the truth of this message, what we call the gospel of Jesus, by believing that in your heart, Jesus will give you a new heart and you will live for all of eternity with him, what better thing for us to set our hearts on today than this truth. Jesus reigns and we, his people, will reign with him for all eternity because he has made a way for us to do so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that this is not simply words of hope, but these are true words spoken about an eternal king who reigns today and will reign for all time. And that we can know in a real way by coming to faith in him. Would you call men and women and boys and girls to faith in this truth right now, we pray. Because apart from you, we can do nothing. Apart from you, we have no faith, but you can give us faith. So would you do so? For the rest in here, God, would you remind us that you reign? When we look around us in our world and we see things, we see evil, we see oppression, we see wickedness, we see the world running rampant, would you remind us that even now Jesus reigns? Set our hearts on that truth, we pray, this year in Christ's name. Amen.